The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Okay, now you know who this is. This is a, a picture of Sir John A. Macdonald. He is uh, he's celebrated as the father of Canadian Confederation. He's Canada's first prime minister. He's the builder of the Canadian Pacific Railroad. Um, and he's done quite a bit to get him on the map as far as Canadian history goes. What is uh, less well known, I think, are his views about Indigenous peoples in Canada. Um, in 1883, in the House of Commons, here's how Sir John A. Macdonald defended um, the need for residential schools. He said that when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. He is surrounded by savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of his thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. The Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes and thoughts uh, of white men. Uh, now that's offensive, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised to see, yeah, some of us are, are offended to hear that. Um, now, some context is helpful. Uh, he said that uh, after another uh, member of parliament had read an anonymous letter uh, from somebody, we'll call him Joe, and Joe was criticizing the government's cruelty to Indigenous peoples. Uh, so Joe's letter was read in the House of Commons. Joe's letter got Sir John A. Macdonald really triggered, and right after the letter, Sir John A. Macdonald said, um, I know who wrote that letter, and I know that he is one of the curses of the Northwest, one of the white men despised by God and men. He is there living and getting fat upon inciting the Indians to discontent. He has been again and again excommunicated by his own, excommunicated by his own church for his unchristian and improper conduct in inciting Indians for his own base and sordid purposes to discontent. Okay, look, I know that's a long quote, but here's what's going on. You've got this white Christian man we'll call Joe. And Joe lives and he eats and he worships Jesus among with the, the, many of the natives. And he speaks out on their behalf, saying that what the government is doing to these native folks sucks. It's not okay. And for, for Sir Johnny MacDonald, that is a terrible thing. It's like, for Johnny, Sir Johnny MacDonald... It's like the natives are going, you know, we were, we were quite satisfied with how the government has treated us, but now that you mention it, Joe, you're right. This is quite intolerable, and now we are discontent. We weren't before, but now, Joe, because of what you've said, yes, now we're, is, now we're discontent. And Joe got kicked out of his church over this, somehow. He was excommunicated. Now, here's why this matters. Because, yes, lots of people, even Christians, were guilty of racism. But here we can see not all of them were. And so an example like a guy named Joe in his letter, that gives me a lot of hope. It's really important. There's something really cool and beautiful and Jesus-like and subversive about Joe, who is willing to stand up for the First Nations folks and be excommunicated by his church for what's called stirring up discontent among the Indian people, as they said. Now today, we, are, we want to have a conversation about the church's role in Canada's history of racism. And if this works, 
I hope that you, you, like you'll be you know a bit better educated, maybe inspired, maybe you'll have some practical steps that you can take. The question really driving this is, what can the church do about what the church has done? Okay, the question today, what can the church do about what the church has done? Uh, as we as we go, you're going to see a phone number on the screen here. If you have questions that come to mind as we go, uh, please do feel free to text them in. Uh, and uh, at the end, we're going to make some time, and I'll do my best to answer those questions at the end of our gathering uh, as, as best as I can. Now, one of the things that I think uh, is helpful to do whenever we're dealing with a contentious subject, I find it helpful to name some of the assumptions that we bring with us. Okay? Now, those they might be right. Our assumptions, but maybe not. But you know, there's nothing worse than an unchallenged assumption. We just—it's important uh, to just kind of name them so that as we go, we can either confirm them or correct them uh, by scripture and by by history. And so, for example, here's some assumptions that I think are just important for us to identify. One assumption uh, that you might make is that systemic racism is less of a problem here in Canada than in the U.S. You know, like, come on, this is Canada. Okay, so you might assume that. You might assume that uh, Canada was originally a Christian nation. Maybe you assume that. Maybe you assume that racism isn't a, isn't a sin issue, but it's just kind of a personal opinion issue. So like, yeah, so what if, uh, if an otherwise fine, upstanding Christian happens to be a racist? It's not a sin issue, it's a personal opinion issue. Maybe you assume that. Uh, a fourth assumption is this, uh, that those who weren't personally involved in an injustice can't be expected to correct it. Maybe you assume that. You might assume, number five, that all our historical figures in Canada were racist. Like, it's unfair to expect otherwise. Like, all of our historical figures were racist. Number six, um, you might assume that Christians have no right to talk about racism when the Bible itself contains so much of it and it, and it seems to endorse it. You might assume that. You might assume that the church should focus on sharing the gospel and we should let the government deal with racism. Okay, just preach the gospel. Maybe you assume that. Maybe you assume, number eight, that focusing on what happened in the past doesn't get us anywhere. Like, it's just, it's time for us to look forward, to move, out, move on ahead. Maybe you assume that. Okay, I could appreciate that. Maybe you assume that the concept itself of race uh, as something that is, you know, where we are differentiated by skin color. Maybe you, you assume that that is settled and scientific fact. Uh, maybe you assume that, that non-whites are responsible to assimilate into, quote, our culture. Okay, like that's, maybe you assume that if that people of color are responsible to, responsible to assimilate into our culture, and if they choose not to, that's fine, but that they don't have any right to complain if they choose not to assimilate. Maybe you assume that. Now just pause before we go any further. How many of us hold, uh, you, you know, as I read th- through those assumptions, how many of you, you felt, yeah, actually, I do assume that. That is an assumption that I have. Yeah, you assume, maybe you assume that about one or two of them. Yeah, or more. Okay, okay. No, that's good. It's really good to know that. Um, so next, I want to talk about language a little bit. You know, in a, in a talk about racism, I think that there's some, some terms that we need to just make sure we are, uh, we're on the same page about. We just need to, make, we need to know what we mean when we use words like, for example, assimilation. Assimilation means blending in. Like when somebody is new to a culture, there are difference and there are differences in languages and traditions and clothing and stuff. Assimilation means that the new person has to change and has to drop some of their old stuff and they need to take on the new stuff. They need to take on the new culture. That's their job. It's their responsibility. 
You know, in assimilation, the host culture does none of the work. In assimilation, it, what, what happens is it's up to the new person to pay the, the whole cost of inclusion. That's assimilation. Another term we need to, we need to identify or define, I guess, is, is white supremacy, which I recognize is a very loaded term. White supremacy is a very loaded term, but we do need to define it. White supremacy is what happens. It's, it's an ideology. It's an idea. It's a, it's a, a, almost a, it's a worldview almost that says that white culture is superior to all the others. And, you know, very few white supremacists realize that that's what they are. Because it's not that they are opposed to including people of color. Okay, it's just that if there aren't any in your peer group or in your community, it's like you haven't lost anything. Okay, so white supremacy happens when you believe or you assume that your culture, your white worldview, your, your whiteness is superior to all other modes of being. To the to the extent that like you aren't it doesn't cost you anything or you're not losing anything not by by not including others in in your life who aren't um, who aren't white that seems to me a fair definition of white supremacy Re- related to that is what's called the doctrine of discovery the doctrine of discovery is the belief that before settlers came uh, Canada was up for grabs and uh, it's there's it's rooted in history it's so so back in the 1400s. European kings and popes would say that God calls us and commands us to go and to discover new lands, conquer them. You know, it's, it's not that these, it's not like they were lost. It's not like they were undiscovered. Um, but to find these lands, to settle them, to establish churches, and to civilize the people there. Like, it's not just our right to settle these lands. It is God's will, and we must. That's the doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery led to colonialism. So colonialism is another loaded term, but what happens is Europeans came over and they set up these colonies, these little pockets uh, where, where they sort of replicated or they, they sort of photocopied their European culture into the new world. And so they set up these colonies with new names and new laws and new ways of life for the natives there. Uh, new France, New England, these are colonies, okay? So colonialism doesn't care who's here first. It only cares about expansion. It only, it's this, it's this, it's like a race to expand and conquer more and more of the land and to civilize and, and uh, colonialize the people who are, who are there. Okay. It only cares about expansion because, because of the, the doctrine of discovery. And because if we don't hurry, some other king is going to come in and, and his people are going to come and claim the land and they're going to, cl- they're going to colonize it. Okay. So, so colonialism has, has shaped Canadian culture in a lot of ways including, as we go on, we're going to see, including the church. Okay, so next we need to talk about the concept of race. What's race? Uh, Race is the mistaken belief that people of various skin tones are biologically different, that they are separable from one another um, biologically. Okay, Uh, and, and so here it's just important to know there aren't multiple human races. Like that's not supported by scripture. It's not supported by science. There is one human race. And, and so that's why we need to talk about the, the word racism as a term. Um, racism is seriously wrong. It's a, this extreme form of prejudice. Racism happens when, race, when racial prejudice meets power. Okay? When I use my voice or when I use my influence in order to privilege white people or to oppress people of color, that is racism, 
okay? And systemic racism takes it a little step further. It, take, it's, it does the same thing, but it, it leverages institutional power, like the power of the police, or the power of the law, or the power of the courts, or the power of the church. And so it uses the, it leverages these, this institutional power for, uh, in order to, um, uh, in, in order to treat people with prejudice, to privilege some, and to disadvantage others. That's systemic racism. I want to spend some time just hearing a few stories. What racism among Canadian Christians has looked like, you know? Because any, I think any helpful talk about racism in Canada, yeah, it's going to deal with the Indian Act. It's going to deal with smallpox blankets. It's going to talk about Africville over in Halifax. It's going to talk about the head, the Chinese head tax. It's going to talk about the Chinese who who died building the railroad and then the, and the Japanese internment camps and. And it's going to talk about the Acadians, and it's going to talk about the statues. But today is a talk about what the church has done and what the church can do about it. And, and what we're asking is, in what ways were Christians part of the problem, and what can we do about it? So I want us to hear some of those stories. Like, for, some, for example, many people don't realize the transatlantic slave trade, going all the way back to Champlain, uh, involved Canada. Uh, by 1760, the black slave population in New France was 1,200 people. And, and so then later, along comes the American Revolution, and there's these huge numbers of loyalists, who, uh, and those are the people who, who uh, stayed loyal to the King of England, and they came up to Canada, and that included uh, 3,500 black men, women, and children who settled in the Maritimes. And so while the white loyalists who came at the same time, they easily sort of integrated, they became members and leaders of churches, these black loyalists were excluded from their churches. And, and, and many of the churches were segregated. And in the end, what, had to ha what happened is that these, these, uh, these some released slaves, some of these, these black loyalists who came up, they raised up their own preachers and they planted their own churches. And some of these white folks uh, in the Maritimes, they weren't having that. And so in one case, uh, white Christians showed up at the baptism of a young woman, of a young black woman, and they tried to stop it by holding her hair so that she couldn't go all the way under the water at her own baptism. Being uh, prevented from going all the way under in her own baptism. And it was Christians who did that. And then way over on the West Coast, we saw anti-Asian racism. So Sir John A. Macdonald, yeah, he loved using Chinese labor for building the railroad, except he believed that Asians can't be assimilated into the white culture. In 1885, in the House of Commons, he said, and I quote, if the Chinese came in great numbers and settled on the Pacific coast, they might control the vote of that whole province. They might enforce those Asiatic principles, those immoralities, the eccentricities, which are aberrant to the Aryan race and the Aryan principles of this house. If you look around the world, you will see that the Aryan races are not wholesomely amal they will not wholesomely amalgamate with Africans or the Asiatics. It is not to be desired that they should come. Let me say that again. This is Sir John A. Macdonald saying about, uh, about Asian folks that it is not to be desired that they should come, that we should have a mongrel race, that the Aryan character of the future British America should be destroyed by a crossbreed or crosses of that kind. That's Sir John A. Macdonald. Okay, so, so probably it won't surprise you that in 1907 there was so, so much anti-Asian racism 
on the West Coast, that their pastors got together and they helped form the Asiatic Exclusion League. Pastors did this. And they gained 40,000 members from across Canada. And it probably won't surprise you that in 1923, British Columbia basic, or essentially banned Asian immigration. And it was Christians who helped to do that. Okay, Christians were part of that. You may not realize Canada has a history of anti-Semitism. Uh, during uh, the wartime, church magazines, like in the United Church of Canada, they would run articles or, or, or sort of uh, these propaganda cartoons warning Canadians about the Jewish problem. So in Quebec, there's this conservative Christian guy named Adrien Arcan, who happened to be a fan of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And uh, it turns out he was funded by them, as a matter of fact. He warned Quebecers about what he called the Jewish invasion. And in 1934, he forms what's called the National Socialist Christian Party, the Nazi, like the, this Christian Nazi party in Canada, which had 3,600 members from across Canada. Again, that's Christians. And uh, in Ontario, Christians refuse to do business with Jews. I, in my, in my own hand, I have held uh, the deed to a Westdale home that said it was like it was written right into the language of the deed that the homeowners were not to sell this home to Jews or Negroes. You may also not know that Canada has a long history of involvement with the Ku Klux Klan that were focused in Saskatchewan in the 1920s. There are about 15, just about 15,000 members uh, in Canada. Uh, and, and 26 of those were United Church Ministers. Those are Christians. Uh, 26 Christian ministers, part of the KKK in Canada. Let's talk about the church's role in, in residential schools. See, see, after Confederation, Sir John A. Macdonald and his government um, felt that the solution to what they call the Indian problem was to assimilate the natives through uh, a system of residential schools. Now, many, many years later, just back in 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they gathered to review what all that went down and listen to the stories of the people who suffered through these residential schools. And when they, can, when they finished their investigation, here's the conclusion that they came to. This is what Justice Murray Sinclair said. I love this guy. This guy's a rock star. Um, he said that what took place in residential schools amounts to nothing short of cultural genocide, a, system, a systematic and concerted attempt to extinguish the spirit of Aboriginal peoples. These actions included the removal of generation after generation of Aboriginal people, sorry, generation after generation of Aboriginal children from their families, the suppression of Aboriginal language and culture, and the attempts to re-educate Aboriginal children with non-Aboriginal culture. To remove a culture deemed inferior. In this way, Marie Sinclair said, Canadian governments and churches and others sought to erase from the face of the earth the culture and history of many great and proud peoples. This is the very essence of colonialism. Now, here's what we know about the church's role here. We know that the schools were run by churches who hired their own priests and pastors and nuns and missionaries as the staff and as the teachers. Okay, we know that. We also know that more than 150,000 First Nations students passed through these schools. We know that about 3,200 
student died uh, at the schools, uh, at least were recorded as dead. 3,200 recorded deaths of students happened at the schools. But as it turns out, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission re- learned that, had, that so many of the records of these schools had been destroyed that there is just no way to know the true number of students who died uh, in residential schools. And they, they estimate that it is more than the 3,200 recorded deaths. It is upwards of 6,000. More than 6,000 students are believed to have died in these residential schools. It's, it's known. Uh, we, we know that uh, some schools had a mortality rate of 60% because of things like disease or exposure or malnutrition or suicide. We know that at least one in five students at these residential schools were sexually abused. We know that about 80,000 residential school survivors are alive today. And they, when they tell their stories, here's the things that they say. Here's one who said that when I was in residential school... Um, they told me I'm a dirty Indian. I'm a lousy Indian. I'm a starving Indian. And my mom and dad were drunkards that I'm to pray for them so that when they died, they can go to heaven. They don't even know that my mom had died while I was in there. Or they, or they do know that she died. Or do they know that she died while I was in there? I, I never saw my mom drink. I never saw my mom drunk. But they tell me that to pray for them so that they don't go to hell. Uh, another person who had gone through the residential school system says, said, um, this is what we were told every day. You savage. Your ancestors are no good. They used to go and they would worship trees and they would, they would worship the animals. And when I went home one summer, I looked at my dad, I looked at my mom and I looked at my dad again. And you know what? I hated them. I just absolutely hated my own parents. Not because I thought they, they abandoned me, I hated their brown faces. I hated them because they were Indians. They were Indian. And, and here I was, you know, coming, you know, coming from... So, so I looked at my dad and I challenged him and he... And I said, from now on, we speak only English in this house. Listen. That was Christians. Okay? That was Christians. Who did that? It was Christians. It was the church who did this to our First Nations brothers and sisters over all those years. I mean, in my opinion, the fact that there are any First Nations followers of Jesus today is a miracle on the, like, on the magnitude of the raising of Lazarus. It's a miracle to me. Okay, systemic racism among Christians is evil and it is wicked and it is, has been widespread in Canadian history, but it was not universal. And there were exceptions. And it's important in a talk about the church's role in uh, systemic racism to also talk about the exceptions. So listen to some of them. Here's some some important exceptions. Uh, one was in Ottawa. You know, in Ottawa, there were Christian, there were, there were Christian critics of Sir John A. Macdonald and the Indian Act. And uh, they said that, uh, th- that Canada's treatment of the natives isn't compatible with Christianity. Okay, Christians did that. And, and that's the way of Jesus. And, and over in Alberta, while many of the churches in the prairies were segregating, not all of them did, in a town called Fort Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta, um, a pastor named Charles Johnston, was, uh, he was slandered 
for inviting the Métis, which had been called, which were being called half-breeds. He would invite them to worship in his largely white church, and for that, he was called a freak. But he was practicing the way of Jesus. In Halifax, in 1946, a young woman named Viola Desmond, the black woman, she was arrested because she refused to sit in the theater balcony, which was reserved for blacks. And this happened nine years before Rosa Parks and the bus boycott in Alabama. So, so Viola Desmond, she faced jail time. And you know what happened? Her pastor and her church, they got to work and they fought the conviction and she won and she was released. That was Christians practicing the way of Jesus. Let me tell you about the St. Louis. The St. Louis is the name of a boat. And in 1939, when anti-Semitism was strong in Canada, this boat, the St. Louis, filled with 907 Jewish refugees, came to Canada. Even Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King wanted to turn them away, but it was a group of 14 Christians and their ministers who wrote him an urgent telegram and, and, and pleaded with King to let him stay in Canada. That is the way of Jesus. Now, they weren't listened to. King turned them away. The boat was turned back, and, and many of those 907 Jews died in the Holocaust. How about one more? Um, you know, in Nova Scotia in the late 1700s, a, a Presbyterian minister, his name is James McGregor. Oh, man, he is, he's upset over how many of his fellow pastors are slave owners. And so at their denominational meetings, they would get together, and he would refuse to offer them communion, and he would refuse to take communion from them. Like, that is a pretty boss move, okay? Right? And that is the way of Jesus. And, and the point here, I hope that you're hearing, is that, yes, Christians did a lot of harm. In lots of ways, Christians were part of the problem. But there were also a lot of Christians who used their voices, and they used their power to push back against uh, racism. Now, just so you know, I know you didn't do it. I know that you weren't there. I know that you aren't responsible for what happened. But um, the reason, part of the reason we're having this conversation today is because the culture doesn't care. Okay? My, my neighbors hardly know the difference between Catholics and Protestants. I don't expect them to know which parts of our history we condemn. Like, do you expect that? Like, my read on this cultural moment that we're in is that no one's really looking for the Christians uh, no one's really looking to Christians for help here against racism anymore. Okay? It, it, I mean, it seems to me, whatever voice we had in the culture on this issue, it is gone. It is gone. So who are they going to listen to now? Are they going to listen? Will they listen to Black Lives Matter? Probably. Politicians, athletes, and celebrities? Yes, probably. They'll listen to them. But the church? Probably not. The church has work to do, and it's sad, because there is every biblical reason for the church, of all people, to speak against racism and to bring reconciliation. So let's take a minute and, and see that. Let's look, take a minute and, and look to the scriptures and hear God's voice in scripture about systemic racism. Look what, he, what the Lord has to say. If you go back to Genesis... Let's understand that when God created, he created all the peoples of the world in his image. And whatever differences there were at creation between people of various colors, shapes, and sizes, God's image was shared among them 
equally. Okay? And after we sinned, his image in us was also distorted equally. In other words, white people don't have more of God's image, and white people aren't less affected by the fall than anybody else. That's important. Now, one key text in the, the race conversation in, in Scripture comes from Genesis chapter 9, where, which is where uh, we read about how uh, Noah, right? You remember Noah? How he, cursed, he put a curse on his son Ham. And um, you, can, you can read about that in Genesis chapter 9. But Noah curses his son Ham, and he says that Canaan, which, who is Ham's son, is going to become like a slave. And it's a pretty awful story. It's not fun to read. But um, a couple hundred years ago, pastors would use this story in order to support the concept of black slavery. Pastors would do, would do that. What they missed, what they failed to see, is that one... Like, why do they assume that blacks came from Ham? That doesn't make any sense. For all we know, it's whites who are descended from Ham. It just doesn't say. Scripture just doesn't say that. And then the second thing is, it turns out, if you follow this, the, 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 the genealogy, if you, it turns out that King David and Jesus himself are half Canaanite. Because they are from the tribe of Judah. And Judah married a Canaanite woman. And so the point is, it is a tremendous mistake to think that Genesis 9 somehow endorses slavery. Genesis 9 cannot be used to give God's endorsement on human slavery. Absolutely not. In the New Testament, it's actually made explicit. In Galatians 3, there's no Jew or Greek slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, Jesus is our peace, who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility so that he can create in himself a new man from the two. In other words, any effort to divide us along racial lines is uh, an effort to rebuild what Jesus died to tear down. Okay? Um, we can keep going. In Galatians 2, there's a story of a conflict between Paul and Peter. They have this argument and this dispute because Peter seems to be showing favoritism to some of his Jewish friends and he's ignoring some of his Gentile friends. And Paul calls him out. And in Galatians 2, Paul says that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. In other words, for Paul, racism is a gospel issue. If you, like if you mistreat people on the, on the basis of race, that is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. And then, of course, we could look to, the, to Jesus himself. When people wanted to learn the way of Jesus, what did he do? He tells them a story. It's a story we, we are familiar with, the, the Good Samaritan. It's the story of a member of the majority culture who is robbed and, and left for dead. And the hero of the story is a Samaritan. And the Samaritan is this racial and religious outcast. He's a misfit. And he's, he's the one of all people who stops to help uh, this man when he when he, when his own people wouldn't and even his religious leaders wouldn't help so listen imagine let's let's translate this to our to our day a little bit imagine it's it's the 1920s okay up north in Wikwemekong on Manitoulin Island here here in Canada uh, at a residential school a residential school teacher is out for a walk and gets lost in the woods and is left in the cold left for dead and starving and freezing and dying and the school staff aren't going to go out 
find him. Uh, the prime minister won't go up, go out and, and help find him. Um, but along comes this little Ojibwe student who is starving and in rags and has been abused by that very teacher. And he carries that teacher back to safety. That student shares his food. Uh, that student clothes that teacher in his own uh, tattered uh, coat. You need to feel that because that is the story of the Good Samaritan and that is the way of Jesus. And you know, at the end of it all, at the end of the, at the, end of the book over in Revelation, we got a, we got a preview of heaven. And, and John says, I looked, you know what I saw? There was a vast multitude from every tribe and nation and people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Listen, you know who's in that multitude? People from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they're clothed in white robes with palm branches and they're crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now just so you know, that's where this is going. Amen? That's where this is all going. Towards like the best, uh, like the best concert you can imagine. And it's not segregated. Okay, there's no, there's no balcony reserved for blacks only. There's no advantage based on color or based on who has the biggest colony or who settled first. There is just great hope. There's great, great hope that racism, it's not just wrong. Not only is racism wrong, and it, of course it is. Racism is a sin. Of course it is. It's not just wrong, but the clock is ticking on racism. And that's what, we, that's what we see here in scripture. Racism's clock is ticking. Racism will not survive when King Jesus comes to take his throne. And if you know that, if you know today that the clock is ticking on racism, then you know that we have every reason today to share the healing and reconciliation that he has already begun. And so here's my question. What can, here's my answer to the question, what can the church do about what the church has done? Okay, to the, to the question, what can the church do about what the church has done? I've got some, I've got some answers. These are, these are what I think are some practical steps that I think Christians can and should take. And there are three, okay? The, these are, the first is a choice to live in caring proximity. Okay, we're going to live in caring proximity. You know, on this side of colonialism, Christians in Canada need to think carefully about what mission looks like. Like Jesus said, as my father has sent me, so I send you. Like, like we're not sent to Christianize Hamilton. We're sent as ambassadors. Now, what might that look like for us as individuals? Um, well, imagine if we said, as we relate to our neighbors, um, you know, I know that lots of Christians were unsafe, but this home, my home is not. This is a safe place. And I know that some Christians abandoned you, but we will not. We are with you and we love you in Jesus' name. And it just, as you know, as it seems to me as a church family, it just seems like more and more, you know, especially for benediction, it seems like you know, I, we're becoming more and more persuaded that God has called us to this city in this 
moment and and we're not going to join in the white flight to the suburbs either as families and homes or as churches we're, what we're learning is that the way of Jesus is to stay and to hang out with those who are confused and hurting and needy and sinful we stay and you know what happens as we get to know our neighbors is this really surprising and this disarming thing for them to uh, to hear us say, hey, you know what? Um, we are confused too. We're needy and sinful and hurting and confused too. And we're with you. And we love you in Jesus' name. And someday it's going to be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. And that seems to me like something that we can do. We're going to live in proximity and we're going to care. A second thing that we're going to do, I believe, is we're going to repent of white supremacy. I am calling this out, y'all. White supremacy is something that we need to repent of. It is, you know what it is? It is a false gospel. Christians need to recognize this is actually at the for me, this is at the level this rises to the level of a dangerous heresy. You have heard of the prosperity gospel, I think, if you spent any amount of time with us. Uh, the prosperity gospel goes like this. God rewards uh, faithful people with health and wealth and prosperity. And you would say, that's not, it's not true. It's, that's bad. We would call that a false gospel because it gives people false hope. Suppose we said, God rewards white folk with the right to assimilate other cultures. Like they're his favorite. They glorify God better than the rest. And so they should be the ones to assimilate all the other cultures. Okay, look, that's actually not so different from the prosperity gospel. It just replaces wealth with whiteness as the reason for God's blessing or the proof of God's blessing. Not grace, not the finished work of Jesus. Whiteness is the grounds of God's acceptance and approval. Of course, nobody would say that. I know that you wouldn't say that, but here's the thing. There is a straight line from white supremacy back through the doctrine of discovery, through colonialism, right to the forms of Christian racism that we have been talking about today. It is not a coincidence. There is a straight line you can draw through these things. And nine times out of eight, the church's racism was rooted in white supremacy. And so if we want to root out racism, if we want to dismantle white supremacy, this is, needs to become a matter of discipleship. Okay? This is a matter of discipleship. I don't care how well a person thinks they know their Bible. If they are committed to a white supremacist uh, worldview, or if they're committed to telling people to just reflect, uh, respect the flag or get the hell out, that's not just ignorant and unkind. Okay, There is a false doctrine under that. It needs to be put down and never picked up again. It needs to be repented of. And we can do that. We must do that. We must repent of white supremacy. So that's a second choice I'm going to challenge us to make. We are going to live in caring proximity. We're going to repent of white supremacy where we must. And we must bring the wounds into the light. Here's the third choice. We're going to bring the wounds out into the light. You know, one critique that comes up with a subject like this is, um, guys, why, why focus on the negative? Why don't we just move forward? Why not move? Uh, why not move on? Uh, a, a guy literally told me this 
uh, this weekend, uh, he, he posted on my Facebook page that he is ashamed of my position on these things and that he was going to pray for my ministry. That's what he said. Um, like, and, and, and that's okay. I, you know, I'm not upset by that. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I love the guy. I feel, but I feel sorry for people who feel this way. Okay? And, and one of the things that I'm learning is that racism doesn't just harm the victim, but it harms the racist. Like, you can't mistreat a fellow image bearer of God without it doing something to the image of God in you too. Okay? All of us need to heal from racism. And moving on isn't going to do that. We need to face our past. You've got to face it. Like, imagine, suppose you've got a cut on your arm and all you have on hand is, an, is, a, is a rag. Okay? You put the rag over the wound. Sure. Yeah, it's going to stop the bleeding. But it's not, it's, not, that's, it's not going to heal. In fact, by putting this gross rag on the wound, you're actually preventing it from healing. It can't heal until you pull the rag off. Right? In the same way, I think we need to see that when Christians sinned against racialized folks, that created a deep wound that time itself cannot heal. If you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, that is your wound too, because it affects how you share the gospel. It affects how you are seen and your credibility. It affects who is willing to listen to you. So we need to pull back the stories. We need to uh, we need to air them out. We need to let them see the light of the day. Light of day. We need to take that shame and anger and pain and betrayal and offer that to the Lord, so that it can be healed, not concealed. And someday. We're going to say Canada is a great country. You know how great Canada is? Here's how great Canada is. Look at what we've learned. Look at what the church has repented of. Look at what has been forgiven. Look at how we love each other now. That's how great Canada is. And I believe that that is how we're going to heal. And we can do that. We can. We actually can do that. Now, you know, as we wrap up this talk, I want to—I just want to invite us to reflect for a minute. And I just want to invite you to think about the assumptions that we started with. And is there something that God wants to change your mind about? Here are those assumptions again here on the screen. If, this, if you have some of these, and if God is pushing on you to, to lay some of these down, to put them down and, and never pick them back up again, why couldn't today be that day? Why couldn't today be the day uh, for you where you put down racism or you put down white supremacy and you find forgiveness and you find a new start? I mean, it totally could be that day. I, I hope it would be that day for you, for your family. But I also hope that you're going to reflect on these stories that you've heard. And I, and I hope that you'll remember that there were important exceptions you know, that Christians are actually really guilty of some super messed up stuff. Christians have done some really messed up racist, racist stuff in Canada, but Christians also were there at a lot of times and they spoke out against it. And, and I don't know if you see yourselves in any of these stories, but I would just hope that if you had to see yourself on one side or the other, I hope that you would see yourself on the side of the exceptions and be the exceptional people uh, who are exceptional not because they're great but because they're but they're exceptional because they spoke up against the against the uh, heresy and false teaching of white supremacy last thing is this 
I just hope it'll land on you. How awesome is the thing that Christ has done for us? Okay, like our, I think that our racist history really helps me to appreciate how non-racist Jesus actually was. And I really hope that that connects for you today. I mean, Christianity says Jesus isn't building a colony, he's building a kingdom. And, and, and Jesus didn't wait for us to figure out his way before he included us in that kingdom. And, and Jesus doesn't expect us to assimilate. He knew everything that separated us. He knows the things that separate us now, and he absorbs it all. He absorbs it all. He dies for it. He absorbs the cost of our inclusion, everything that needed to happen in order to crush racism, to bring peace, to reconcile us, to give us eternal life and joy in him. All of that has been done for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? So we don't assimilate. We don't assimilate anybody else. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not a thing in God's kingdom. We don't assimilate. We just say Yes, we just belong and we just invite others to belong because Jesus meant it when he said there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening.